welcome to the Political Philosophy Podcast. I'm Toby Buckle. This week's episode is a narrative episode by me. It's a one-parter, though, so it's just self-contained. It's not like the series. And I take up the question, which is something I've been asked a few times now, and is a common challenge to people who give an account of ideology like I do, of, are ideologies true? Can we say that some ideologies are right and others are wrong? In bookkeeping, next week we'll be back to interviews. I won't give it away because I haven't recorded the interview yet, but um, I should have someone really good to do um, European politics and Brexit again. I've been very, very happy, actually, with my Brexit commentators that I've been able to get on so far. And then I think going forward for the next few months, looking at my calendar, it'll pretty much alternate back and forth between solo episodes and interview episodes. We'll see how it goes, and you can always have an interview cancel at the last minute, so I'm being slightly cautious about announcing who I'm going to have on. Some podcasts do, some don't. I don't. So this is a one-part editorial episode on Are Ideologies True? And then going forward, it should be alternating pretty much back and forth. That's it for bookkeeping. Big thank you as ever for everyone who tunes in to listen, and a big thank you to my Patreon supporters. So yeah, without any further preamble, let's get straight to this week's episode. Are ideologies true? Here's a quote, and I want you to guess, without knowing where it's from, who said this. Quote, The tongue of man is a twisty thing. There are plenty of words there of every kind. The range of words is wide, and their variance. End quote. Who do you think said that? The tongue of man is a twisty thing. There are plenty of words there of every kind. The range of words is wide, and their variance. It sounds a bit like this sort of modern, linguistically inspired political theory that I've been talking a lot about on this show, right? Maybe a bit older. Maybe this is like a Wittgenstein quote, something like that. But it sounds very much like something out of modern philosophy of language. Long-time listeners of the show will know that I sort of like to play tricks with quotes like this. So you're guessing older, right? Maybe like Shakespeare or something? This is Homer. This is from the Iliad. One of, like, at least in the Western tradition, one of the oldest works that we have. We think of the past ancient history, right, as sort of like a literal place where people had clearly defined moral values in its, um, today with our postmodernism and anything goes and laissez-faire that, uh, that you get this sort of wishy-washy 
do things really mean anything. But this central sort of thesis that animates this podcast, that politics at its heart is often competitions over the control of language, this idea has been around in many different forms from the very beginning, and just staying in ancient Greece, it's not just Homer in the Iliad, a little bit later on the, down the line, you'll get um, Aristotle um, in rhetoric, talking about the different ways people use language, and talking about how the same action will be interpreted with very different moral lenses, depending on how someone wants to frame it. Now, to be clear, the ancients, when they talked about this, the early moderns, when they talked about this, they were, were lacking a lot of what I think are the key interpretive frameworks for making sense of it. They didn't have Wittgenstein's family resemblances, or private language, or anything like that. But that the tongue of man is a twisty thing has been something that people have recognized and been thinking critically about. I mean, maybe for as long as there are people, certainly for as long as we have written records, there's this awareness of the, the, the power and the influence of language. And my understanding of politics is really formed by that, how at heart, what political contestation is about, is about competitions over the control of language. But then... Does that mean that just anything goes? There's a fear to this, right? There's a fear that if, you, if things aren't definitionally true, then anything becomes permitted, and we're left with no standards at all staring into the howling void. And that's um, a sort of question and a challenge that I've gotten a lot in this podcast, and it's also something that people who have a very linguistically inspired approach to looking at political belief systems get all the time. I've talked about the work of Michael Frieden a lot on this podcast, and the number one challenge people have to that work is they feel like it's telling them that they can't have a preferred moral system. That if we have this linguistic approach to understanding what ideologies are, then we'll have no place to stand in order to assert moral truths that we think need to be asserted. Now, I think that's wrong, broadly, um, but let, let's try and frame the question a little bit clearer. So what do I mean when I say a linguistically inspired approach? At its heart, a lot of political dispute revolves around competing definitions, competing meanings, competing conceptions of these big value terms like freedom, justice, fairness, equality, dignity. So let's just take freedom. This is a one that I've talked about a lot on this podcast. So if you were with me for my libertarianism series, I talked about how from the middle of the 1800s, I mean, through to today, but there was at least two different meanings of the word freedom that were found in liberal thought that were self-consciously competing with each other. So, on the one hand, you had libertarians who said, freedom is 
the lack of interpersonal constraints, particularly interpersonal constraints on your property rights. Security in your person and possessions, as Herbert Spencer said. You then have a more expansive definition of freedom that's being proffered to us by progressive liberals like John Stuart Mill, through to L.T. Hobhouse, Hobson, I put Keynes in that tradition, where freedom also includes things like access to education and healthcare. It's more fully grounded in the autonomy and the flourishing of a human being. And then more recently still on the podcast, I explored different Republican ideas of freedom. Freedom as resisting domination, freedom as not being bullied, freedom as not being not feeling humiliated. Now, with other sorts of values, we can maybe assess them in light of something else, but freedom appears to us in political thought as an end. You say it is we want people to be free. And if you ask why, you just sort of get a blank stare, right? It's an end in itself. It's it's considered intrinsically good that we are free. But if you just look at the world, it's clear that people are using the term to mean very different things. People are using it to call our attention to particular um, attributes of human nature, particular things that they think are noteworthy about the way we interact with each other or form societies together. And they're saying these things, that's freedom. Now, this, this isn't always fully self-conscious, by the way. A lot of times we just use the term freedom. We just use the term fairness. We don't think, we just do it. And even when it is conscious, we're not always aware of the exact set of family resemblances that we're calling into action. But if you just look, you see all of these different uses of the term, some subtly different from each other, some radically different from each other. Now, if we're approaching all of those differences from the point of view of the ideologue, or the point of view of someone who wants to defend one, then we can just say, well, you know, this ours is right, and then there's all these other different confused ones. But what if we're sort of approaching it from first principles, if we follow Wittgenstein's adage and, quote, don't think, look. If we stop trying to think what ought freedom to mean, and we just look at what it does mean, we're met with this bewildering variety of very eclectic and mutually incompatible meanings of the term. So what are we to do with that, right? How, how are you to say that one of those meanings is true over and ob- above another one? After all, it's, it's, not, it's not the type of thing you can just measure. What's, what standard, what, 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 what would you bring in? What, what would freedom be true in light of? What would make one of those definitions correct? And so a lot of people feel then that this way of looking at political concepts that just merely recognizes the obvious reality in the world, the empirical reality in the world, 
that people both consciously and subconsciously use them in a variety of different ways. How do you... How do you... Does then everything become permitted? Now, before trying to answer this question in any sort of, like, big, philosophical, absolute, this is the one revealed truth sort of way, like, before we just barrel in and go, well, here's my meta-ethics, I think it makes sense to again follow Wittgenstein's adage and stop thinking and just look. You know, how do real human beings, be they populations who hold political preferences or policymakers and politicians, how do actual human beings living in actual societies make sense of conceptual indeterminacy? Conceptual indeterminacy, by the way, I'm bringing the term in because it's going to be in a quote I'm going to use in a second, is sort of the formal name for that freedom, fairness, justice, and so on are indeterminate in, in, um, in meaning. So that, that's a way of describing what I just did in, in the case of um, freedom, that these concepts are defined by each other and not by any absolute standard. How do people make sense of conceptual indeterminacy? Well, the way they do it is people have, and again, this will often be at a subconscious or a largely subconscious level, people have systems of values that tie these concepts together in a recognizable pattern. So one essentially contestable concept is freedom. Another is individuality, say, right? Another could be progress, something like that. And they become mutually defining. We say freedom has something to do with the idea of individuality. And what forms is a pattern in which this system asserts this is what freedom means, this is what individuality means, this is what progress means, and this is how they link up together. So you get like a constellation between them. You could almost imagine literally a constellation, right, where the stars, the fixed points of the concepts, and then the lines between them are the particular paths of argumentation. Now again, this may well be, and I think in most cases is, largely subconscious. But if you think about it just common sense, the way people use this value terminology isn't perfectly logically coherent, but it isn't random either. If someone, and again, maybe subconsciously, but if someone tends to use freedom in a strongly libertarian sense, it's probably quite unlikely, it's not impossible, but just statistically, again, don't think, look, it's probably quite unlikely that they also use the word equality in a very socialist equality of outcome sense. If they have a libertarian conception of freedom, they probably have a more sort of like equality before the law, right, sort of conception of equality. And so, so the way in which these concepts present to us come in fairly clear patterns. Um, and actually, in my own published work, if you look up my article in the Journal of Political Ideologies, 
you can just survey people on this and you can see that these different terms tend to be correlative, right? The way people understand one will act as a good predictor of the way they understand others. So you have these patterns, these systems of meaning, which come to us asserting these are what the different concepts are and these are the links between them. And the name um, I happen to give those systems is political ideologies, which, you know, like, I sometimes wonder if there's a better way of putting this. We could just maybe say, like, political belief systems, because ideology comes to us as a term pre-stigmatized. I follow Michael Frieden in just using the word political ideology and saying I don't necessarily mean anything bad by it. But you could also just say political belief systems. And one of the fundamental actions of political belief systems, political ideologies, is what Frieden calls to decontest, to remove from contestation. So this is the action of turning a concept into a conception of that concept. So freedom, you know, incorporating all of the, the meanings that I've talked about, is a concept. The libertarian ideal of freedom is a conception of that concept. It's a particular variant. And then the libertarian will combine that with a particular conception of the individual, a particular conception of property rights, of the free market. Free market, you see? You see how that immediately just starts working itself in? Of government and so on and so forth. And taken together, that um, patterning is the, that is what it is to be an ideology. So then the question becomes, well, okay, can ideologies be true? And I think that's a more valuable question than merely asking, can a particular conception of a concept be true? Because these conceptions don't exist in isolation, and the way that we do make sense of these concepts and give meaning them to them and flesh them out is by reference to other concepts. So I asked the question at the beginning, in virtue of what would you assess whether an end in itself, like freedom, you know, a particular idea of it is right or wrong? And I think the answer is in terms of other big values, right? I mentioned freedom often tends to be understood in terms of ideas of the individual, of property, of autonomy. It, in other conceptions, though, it can, it can be a collectivist ideal. So, so I think it makes much more sense to, instead of asking, can, can a particular conception of a concept be true? I think it makes sense to ask, can these patternings or systems of concepts be true? Can an ideology be true or false? Now, I, I will admit, I've been, I, I always, this is the question everyone always has when you sort of present this mode of analysis. And my response has been a bit lazy. I've said, well, ideologies aren't absolutely true, but, you know, there's better and worse variants. And, well, you know, then that just begs the question, well, what makes them better or worse? And I do think that's a question deserving of a serious answer. 
Another way of looking at it, and something a lot of people say, is, well, why do we need them at all, right? These do seem very vague and confused ways of understanding the world, right? Surely we can do better than this. So, I got some quite nice long um, emails in response to my Machiavelli series, and I'm just going to read a little bit from um, one of the questions I got. Um, so there's context to this, but I'll just read one paragraph. I fear these big words, Stephen said, which make us so unhappy. Freedom, will, people, ideology, etc. The reason they can't be tied down philosophically is there are large, undefined geographies. Anyone can argue what they mean. More productive, surely, to ignore them and develop a specific theory or approach, as you did in terms of resistance and rule and how they operate in a constitution. It's not necessary to tie them back to this big word freedom. I don't think it works in its own terms. It feels as if philosophers are hunting for an essence in the big unhappy words that aren't there. End quote. Well, I mean, I certainly agree with the last part, that philosophers um, are hunting for a final truth that's not there. There's never going to be a moment, right, where someone says, ah, no, I've got, this is what freedom is, and I've just got the best argument for it that nobody could conceivably refute, and the whole world just goes, oh, oh, shoot, no, that dude got it right. What were we thinking, right? That moment is never coming. Or it seems vanishingly unlikely that it's coming. So the idea that we're just going to, you know, like, get it, and, oh, yeah, shoot, you know, turns out it's this one weird form of socialism was right all along. That isn't happening, and, and one of the terms we use to think about these concepts is essentially contestable. By their nature, they're being fought over. So if the goal or aspiration is to have a sort of final meaning, then that, that aspiration's always crimereal, right? It'll never happen, and yet somehow we couldn't be without it. And this goes to the other side. Why not, as the questioner says, try to develop a specific theory or approach? Well, I think the, the question gives me far too much credit in when I talked about resistance and rule and constitution. These are also essentially contestable concepts. Resistance is an essentially contestable concept. Rule is an essentially contestable concept. Now, what, what I could do, I guess, is make up entirely new words with, you know, meanings defined by me. But, one, it's dubious that anyone would ever start using them. But, two, if you think about the vast amount of data that there is in the social and political world, so I think um, the treasury statistics, which you can download online, and I sometimes download and just play with them for fun, have 63,000 different variables that the treasury... Oh, hi, doggy. That the treasury measures in um, measuring the American economy. And those aren't the only 63,000 variables, they're just the ones that they happen to track. And then that's just particular economic indicators. Think about how many, like, different numbers and facts I could assign to just my day-to-day -day life, my interactions with others. How many cups of coffee do you drink a day? How many times do you tell your wife you love her per week? These are all things you can measure. 
You might say, well, those aren't the most important things. Some people might say they are. And so, in just attempting to make sense of it, you're going to necessarily have to draw some pretty broad distinctions to say, well, these data points are the ones that we're interested in. Now, that is sort of what political ideologies do for us, right? They sort of point us in the direction. They give us like, okay, this is, you know, to a libertarian, they're always going to be interested in constraints on the individual. They're always going to be interested in the size of government. They're always going to, yeah, yeah. It's a starting point. It tells you what to look for, right? And different ideologies will pick out different elements of the same situation and say, so, yeah, that's that's the really important bit. That's what we've got to we've got to focus in on. And we need that because the, the totality of data coming in at us from the social and political world is just too much for us to make sense of. And so we need to pick out particular elements of it. So we need ideologies. We also need them to just tell us how to feel about the world. I I always use this example, but imagine you were told in a job interview that the job isn't hiring for women. You know, we're only interested in male candidates. How would you feel? And, and what's more, what would you feel about someone who didn't feel anything at all in that situation? You would feel a certain way, and you would put a concept to it. You'd say that's not fair, or that's not just, or you know, whatever. So you would have to... and definitionally you would you would mean a certain thing by using that concept you would be using a conception of that concept so we have to have ideologies to function and we have to have them in such a way as if we know for sure that our preferred conceptions are right but we don't you know not really so then let, let's circle back to this big question then. Are ideologies true, or is it possible for us to assess the truth or false value of a particular ideology? Is liberalism more true than libertarianism? So, let's go to Frieden himself. This is... Um, from Ideologies and Political Theory, and there's a little uh, subchapter called The Escape from Strong Relativism. And I'm going to do quite a long quote, I'm going to do the full, um, full first paragraph of this uh, chapter. And I already defined conceptual indeterminacy. The other specific term that gets mentioned here is decontesting, which, as I just went over, is the act of taking a concept and turning it into a conception. So this is sort of the nuts and bolts of what ideologies do. So taking it from Frieden, I'm going to read for a little bit and then um, go back and do some analysis of it. So, quote, Conceptual indeterminacy and its ideological response in the form of decontesting may seem to posit an inescapable relativism which cannot prioritize any ideological solution over another, a view shared by some postmodernists. Importantly, however, although there are no correct definitions of political concepts, not all uses are equally acceptable. To say that they are not equally acceptable is not to dispute that unacceptable uses may gain social legitimacy in certain contexts. Rather, 
it is a reasonable concession by the analysts of ideologies towards political and moral philosophers. Not because it is necessary or relevant to the analysis engaged in here, nor because rationalism or intuitionism are compellingly persuasive, but because of the consequentialist impact that political concepts and their signifiers, political words, have in the real world. Rorty has forcefully argued that the very issue of relativism cannot exist in a world where there is no truth out there, which language must represent. It is not that relativism is right, but that universalism is not helpful. But, whereas we may agree with Rorty that there are no absolutely true standards, independent of the vocabularies we employ, the absence of a, quote, view from nowhere does not endorse the view from everywhere. Nor does the rejection of a total or strong relativism necessarily ensnare us in a universalist perspective, as the purveyors of dichotomies would have it. Rather, societies may adopt standards and express value preferences which, however imperfect, are the result of the combination of two factors, enlightened deliberation and factual knowledge. End quote. So, here Frieden sets up the challenge, the problem, the issue many people have with this form of analysis. And he gives us a sketch of sort of where he thinks the answer is going to be located. And his first move is to say, this isn't an either-or. It's not that concepts or ideologies can e are ever going to have like this final answer that's definitively and unequivocally true. But it's not also the case that all definitions are valid and there's absolutely no truth to be had. He's saying it's somewhere in between. And surely this is right. And like, this I think is the problem, and I think honestly just getting your head into this mode of analysis, where it's something of a middle ground, I think this, this surely has to be, and we all know this in our, in, in our day-to-day lives, you know, we all sort of understand that our knowledge of the world is murky, and we're, we're all just sort of doing our best, right? But when it comes, as I talked about in my conversation with um, Jacob Levy, when it comes to evaluating systems of moral and political thought, we want those systems to give us guarantees that, in a sense, they're not capable of giving us. They, we want those systems to guarantee to us that, that we know for sure they're exactly 100% true, and that's just not something those systems can do for us. Frieden's next move, after sort of setting up where he thinks the solution is going to be found, is to mention two broad approaches, enlightened deliberation and factual knowledge, that he thinks we can assess ideologies in light of. Because the big challenge here, right, is if ideologies are, as I've described, their, their patterns amongst particular conceptions of essentially contested concepts, if that's right, then, then what, what would make one of them right or wrong, or better or worse than another, right? And he says, enlightened deliberation and rational knowledge, those are two things to which we can appeal, 
to assess political ideologies. And he talks about both a little bit um, in general terms, but I'm going to go through and try to give some specific examples to concretize this a little bit. Let's start with factual knowledge. There's nothing about what I'm in saying that implies a sort of, like, true postmodernism in which we're doubting, say, the validity of particular scientific results or empirical findings about the world. Like, the fact that political concepts are very, very big and vague and fuzzy and that can be intimidating at first, that doesn't mean that, like, chairs and tables and desks and shit don't exist and that we don't know that, like, my table... So I record this at a table, so, like, all of my examples are, are, are about tables, which probably isn't very imaginative. But we know that, like, my table... My table is 72 inches long, right? That is, I actually haven't measured it. But that is a falsifiable statement, right? I can just measure it. There is a right answer there. And what's so scary about, like, freedom is there's no tape measure, right? Or seemingly there isn't. But there are facts about the world, right? And I'm actually, you know, for all that I, I people read me as a postmodernist when I talk about political concepts, I'm a fairly hard-nosed empiricist when it comes to, like, some things are just true. I, I remember I was talking to someone once who was sort of a social justice type, which I identify with myself, and they sort of said, you know, it's all just personal truth. And I said, well, no, some things are just definitionally true. And they, they asked for an example, and I said, well, two plus two equals four. You know, it's, it's cheesy, it's corny, but you know, th there we go. And um, they said to me, well, that's a very privileged thing to say. And I just, w what can you say back to that? Like, that that's just not a reasonable or rational way of looking at the world. Which is not to deny, by the way, my privilege, and it's not to deny that, um, you know, certain things are socially constructed and so on. But there are just facts about the world. But how does 2 plus 2 equals 4 help us in assessing... Um, Freedom is non-domination versus freedom is non-constraint. Well, firstly, because these values like freedom and so on don't exist in isolation. They exist in patterns, and those patterns form paths from central or core concepts like freedom through adjacent concepts like democracy or constitutionalism or something to real-world policy issues. We're not theorizing about freedom for the sake of it, right? Those ideas exist in a reciprocal interaction with specific policy preferences. And the things we say about specific policy preferences very definitely can be true or false. So let's concretize it a little. It seems to me and, you know, I could take, you, don't, you don't even have to agree with me on the examples that I'm giving, but they are examples of specific, you know, falsifiable statements. It seems to me that the contemporary Republican Party in America, at least on some issues, is committed to things that are just false. So it, it's the stated position of, of many Republicans, including our president, the global warming is BS. It's a hoax. Um, it's what, what? What did Trump call it? He says it was a it was a Chinese hoax, right? He said it was a Chinese hoax, which is preposterous. But this is something where sort of a standard 
scientific epistemology can just do its work. Now, now I'm not an expert on global warming, but you can well imagine the sorts of appeals to evidence and peer-reviewed studies and da 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 You know, when it comes to sort of asserting that global warming is real, that is a statement where the truth or falsity of that statement, we're on much firmer epistemological ground. I'll give you just one more. Um, it seems to me like there's a big chunk, maybe the whole Republican Party, that just sort of is really committed to the idea that cutting taxes on the wealthy will increase revenues, like something like the Laffer curve, right? Well, we've had three decades of experience on this, both, both the Bush and the Reagan and now the Trump tax cuts, as well as a number of tax cuts on the state's level, and it's just not true. Like, every time it's tried, you know, if it turns out, if you cut taxes, you lower revenues and the deficit goes up. And we've just seen that in action any number of times. Now, those sorts of policy preferences, I think, are quite readily falsifiable. How does that help us in assessing the concepts? Well, because, again, the concepts exist in a reciprocal interaction with them. Ideologies aren't just about values, they're, they're also epistemological understandings of the world. And if you have a particular um, ideology that gives very, very, very strong positive valorization to, to very rich individuals, job creators, right, Republicans call them, and very positively valorizes that specifically tight conception, and then through that conception, um, through intermediate concepts, is very locked into this idea that we have to cut um, taxes. I think then we can begin to say, in some sense, that that, that particular core concept is less correct by a sort of transitive property of incorrectness being passed through from the perimeter. I think well, that's a very wonky way of putting it. Put simply, if your core concepts are in a mutually sustaining relationship with empirically false policy commitments, or policy commitments, rather, that are predicated on empirical falsehoods, I think that's one way in which we can begin to um, assess those core concepts critically. Now, that's not as hard as some people would want, right? Like, I think some people would want that to be a lot harder and, and, and to really be able to say, you know, no, it's wrong definitionally. But just given the vast plurality of understandings of these terms, I don't know that some sort of definitional diffs proof is available to us. And at the end of the day, you know, what is true about the world is what is true about the world, and certain things are going to make sense or not. And that people really seem to want there to be some sort of definitional disproof doesn't mean there's going to be one. You know, what we have available to us is what we have available to us, and, and that's it. And honestly, like, people kind of just need to get over this, like, but the, the reductio ad absurdum of this is when, like, oh, but, like, if there's no God, then why should we be good? Well, you know, 
the fact that you really want it to be true doesn't make it true, right? Either there's a god or there's not, right? And if there's not, then sounds like you need a reason to be good. Like, that, that's on you, buddy. And it's the same here. It's like, you, you want a definitional disproof of, like, this is wrong in virtue of something that's unassailable. And we just don't have access to that. And the next move people make is to say, oh, so it's just all completely meaningless then. And as Frieden said in that quote, it's a middle ground. You know, we have some tools available. They're not as strong as perhaps we would like, and they're not as decisive or as simple or as easy to use as perhaps we would like, but they're there. You know, and I think when you look specific, particularly at policy commitments, um, th th these are often, very often, just simply false, right? Or rather, I should say, um, the claims which, which sort of um, predicate those policy preferences are just false. And, you know, the epistemology behind that is fairly straightforward. And I don't, you know, I don't think we need to tie ourselves in knots about it. And actually, we can go further in that I think there's some instances, not always, but I think there's some instances where the particular conceptions of essentially contested concepts um, make or imply empirical claims about the world which we can assess directly. So let me give you an example of this, and this is actually at its core why I'm not a conservative, in that I think conservatism is empirically false in a way that other ideologies aren't. So I've mentioned there are particular policy preferences that some contemporary conservatives hold that I think are just false, and that falsity is in a reciprocal interaction with some of its core concepts. But then I think the core concepts are actually just wrong. So according to Frieden's analysis, one of the core concepts of conservative thought is this idea that there are sort of fixed rules to how society is governed. He calls it um, an extra-human origination of the social order. So concretely, back in the day, this was like the divine right of kings. You know, God told the king he's in charge, it's coming in from the outside as a justification, and there's nothing really that you can do to change it, right? Um, in today's world, you often get, like, the quote-unquote laws of economics filling that same function. We're told this is just a structure by which society operates. It's just given to us. We can't change the laws of economics. Margaret Thatcher said this directly. She said, we fight against the delusion that the basic laws of economics can be suspended, end quote. And that's very much an animating principle in conservatism. It's also in a closely mutually um, supporting relationship with the idea of a fixed and unchanging human nature. So in the modern case, the idea is people are individually, rationally self-interested. So we're sort of like these egoic um, want-fulfillers, right? And then that supports the idea of the free market, and the free market supports that. And, you know, put simply... Society has rules that are sort of fixed and unchanging, because human nature has sort of features that are fixed and unchanging. Now, it's always sort of been an irony to me that what conservatism posits is fixed and unchanging, 
actually changes quite a lot, right? Like, conservatives are more interested to say there are these set structures than actually what those structures are. And I might do a full episode at some point on just conservatism and, like, fleshing out that account of it. And by the way, that gets you out of the challenge of people say, well, if conservatism is just in the name, it's there to conserve. How do you explain Reagan? How do you explain Thatcher when conservatives can be very, very radical, right? Or some of the stuff Trump's doing, for that matter. And the answer is, is they view change as reversionary or restorative. So if there are these fixed rules to society, sometimes you're in the position of trying to maintain them. Sometimes you're in the position of trying to get to them when liberals, you know, have done all their crazy stuff and they've gotten us away from, you know, away from God and the family or away from the basic laws of economics and they want to return us to that underlying structure. Now, I think that relies on claims that although big and although very difficult to measure and to think about, are at their root empirical claims. The idea that human nature is fixed, the idea that there are extra human constraints on the social order, are these are empirical claims about the world. Empirical claims that are, at least in theory, falsifiable. And I think they're actually just not true. If you, 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 you to look at human history is to look at a dizzying plethora of different systems to whom the particular things that we assume are fixed about human nature are not only counterintuitive but starkly unintelligible to most people who've ever lived. I, I, gave, I always give the example of freedom, and along with um, Michael Frieden, one of the big influencers on how I think politically um, is Orlando Patterson, and he shows how freedom is something that's in invented. It is a socially constructed value that was sort of just made up in response to pol particular political and social circumstances. By the way, I've had both of these people on the podcast, so you can check out my interviews with um, both Michael Frieden and Orlando Patterson. That's a little self-promotional aside. But Patterson shows us, I think convincingly, that freedom is something that has only existed in particular times and places historically. And the idea that this, it's this sort of natural human urge is an empirical claim about the world that is false. So, you know, if your ideology is at least latently relying on the world being a certain way for it to make sense, and the world isn't that way, that is something that we can use to critically assess that ideology and say, well, it's better or it's worse. Now, you might not agree with my characterization of conservatism. That needs a lot of evidencing. You might not agree with my claim that, you know, human nature is fixed is an idea that's falsified by history. But you can get some idea of how, you know, facts about the world can be brought to bear on assessing the truth status of political ideologies. The next one that Frieden talks about is, you know, enlightened discussion. I'm, I'm going to break this down into a few component parts. The first is, 
we can just look at internal coherence, like I said. And this is why I think it makes more sense to ask, are ideologies true, than to ask, is a particular version of a political concept true? Is because they're patterns, right? And so it, it's difficult to sort of say, is this particular meaning of freedom true? Because its meaning is supplied to it by other concepts, which it exists in a mutually sustaining relationship with. So again, you know, in libertarian theory, there's a very close mutually sustaining relationship between individualism and freedom. Or in republican theory, it's non-domination and freedom. So it makes sense to ask, are these systems as a whole. And one thing we can bring to it is, are they internally coherent? And this is something that you can get at through, you know, like Frieden says, enlightened deliberation. And again, this, this is sort of going to rest in that middle ground, right? Like, there's no amount of enlightened deliberation that's going to get you to you know, we solved it, right? Like, occasionally in physics, right, you've got one of these big problems that physicists have been studying, and people have different points of view, and then there's a particular test, or someone does a particular proof, and it's just like, oh, we got it. Or in pure mathematics, like something like Fermat's last theorem was a conjecture forever and ever and ever and ever and ever, and then just one day some dude writes a proof of it, and everyone's like, oh, shoot, yep, that's it. Solved. That's never coming. But at the same time, I think if we think about, you know, reasoned deliberation about ideologies, I think we can meaningfully say that that deliberation can be better or worse. And I think we can say, at the very least, that there are obviously incoherent ideas. And so another thing is if ide ideologies are often aiming us to bring us a total worldview. Something like liberalism or socialism or conservatism isn't just, it isn't just a theory of like, in these circumstances, this is how we use the word freedom. It's a total view of the social and political world. Really, everything you need to know in terms of your orientation to politics is contained within, or at least that's how these, these belief systems advertise themselves to us. So I think we can assess one of them as worse if it doesn't hang together, if some parts of it contradict other parts of it. Now, I should say that I think our standard here has to necessarily be quite low, because ideologies exist often at a subconscious level. Perfect coherence is probably too high a bar. I don't think any of them meet that. But again, staying within this sort of middle ground between a, a sort of chest-thumping universalism and the howling void of pure nihilism, which is, by the way, where we spend our day-to-day -day lives, we can say that we can begin to sort of look at them and we can begin to discount obviously incoherent ideas. And that, you know, through conversations and discussions and, well, you know, philosophy, right, we can begin to make critical sense of this. And that although there'll never be a final solution, that better arguments will win out over worse ones some of the time, right? And again, you might want the world to give you more guarantees than that, but that is what the world is, as far as I can see it. So, 
let's get into a specific case here. I think there's some socialisms, and by the way, I'm using the plural here, um, and I, I realise I'm inconsistent about this. Sometimes I say liberalism, sometimes I say liberalisms. Liberalism, socialism are big family resemblances terms within which there are many sort of subsets, right? So if I talk about some socialisms, I'm talking about some parts. So it's some socialisms, some radical worldviews, um, contain, I think, an incoherence. And so there's one type of incoherence we talked about, which is a sort of factual incoherence, like they tend to imply or be associated with claims about the world that aren't true. There's also just, like, two different, essentially contestable concepts that just don't seem to both be able to be true at the same time. And I think... So let me give you a specific example of this, and you don't have to agree with me on this, but this is an example of how we might critically assess an ideology. I think some socialisms and some, rad some radicalisms, some sort of non-liberal left ideological variants, are sort of conceptually incoherent, in that they have at their heart a particular theory of change, which other ideologies too, liberalism and conservatism, both have a theory of change at their heart. Liberalism has a sort of progressive, one-step-at-a-time theory of change. Conservatism, like I talked about, has this restorative um, or rev revisionary theory of change. Um, Social, not all socialisms, but many, and certainly radicalisms, have a radical theory of change. They have a revolutionary theory of change. They have a you know, revolutionary moment where like, we are just going to tear down the corrupt established order brick by brick and rebuild it again. And you know, that's a point of view, right? But I would argue that it is, or at least it has the potential to be, in a sort of irreconcilable conflict with other things that socialists want to believe. Um, so the first of which is this idea of history as like the ultimate revealer of truth, in that there is just an odd, sort of superficial level, right? There is just a sort of odd thing whereby socialism is always presenting us with apples to oranges comparisons. They want to compare the current economic system, call it capitalism. Mill made this critique, in fact, like a century and a half ago. They want to compare the current economic system with all of its ills, which exists in reality, to some purely hypothetical economic system that exists only in their heads. And that's weird, right? Now, there's other forms of socialism that don't have that. Like, there's a lot of sort of quote-unquote social democrats who sort of want the US to become Norway, essentially, and have, for all of their supposed radicalism, have a fairly conventional view of how we get there in terms of, like, we have some protests and we win some elections. This is a complete aside, by the way, but... If your most radical idea is raising the minimum wage and having stronger unions, then cool, I agree with you, but the best word for your political beliefs might not be radical. Just saying. Probably made some of my audience mad with that. But in the more radical forms, where they really do want some sort of true communal thing where capitalism has been destroyed and there just isn't a market sector anymore, it is weird to sort of have this conversation 
where the moral standards of which we judge the world around us are by a purely hypothetical world. And I'm not the only one, like I say, from John's, there was a century and a half from John Stuart Mill's chapters on socialism through to today of people finding that incongruous. And, and it becomes incongruous in a number of different ways. So here's one I've been thinking about recently. A lot of um, social justice activists want to maintain that people are ir- irreparably damaged by systems of oppression and that you know, if you are white and male, you are sort of definitionally almost racist and sexist, and that is going to manifest itself in every conversation you have, that that race and gender are going to run through everything, every conversation that you have with people. And I talked about this with Rupert Reed, actually, um, in my, the second interview I did with him. And he said, we've got to be careful here. And I mean, certainly he's not saying that racism and sexism aren't real, but we've got to be careful here. The idea that they're they're always there. Is this just creating another dogma? Now, at the end of the day, it's a claim about the world that's either correct or not. Can we carve out spaces where, you know, after work and effort, genuine friendships are possible in which these sorts of oppressive conditionings are no longer present? I, I don't know. But here's what's interesting. Is that idea that we are sort of irreparably damaged and conditioned by these systems? So, you know, another example would be the idea that, you know, white people should never talk about um, racism. They should always just sort of listen and absorb. Um, the, 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 our standpoint epistemology, that our understanding is always going to be limited and constrained by our perspective, I actually don't think that's a completely stupid way of, of, of looking at the world. I think there's elements of truth to it. But that's obviously incompatible with a radical, th- a revolutionary theory of change. Because, like, say we do have a revolutionary moment and suddenly retool up and redesign all of our social and political institutions, then the human beings who are living in those social and political institutions are, according to your theory, still going to be subliminally or subconsciously racist and sexist and homophobic, and will simply recreate those systems of oppression will rematerialize. And that's been recognized by radicals for a while. So Foucault said this, right? And if you haven't, by the way, seen the Foucault-Chomsky debate, it's on YouTube, you absolutely should. It's one of the classics about this, where Foucault essentially says, you know, our um, ways in which we're oppressed are internalized so much that even if you created some sort of socialist, anarchist utopia, they would just reassert themselves again. And so the idea of, like, the conditioning of oppression is mutually incompatible with the idea of a sort of revolutionary moment in which history ends, like Marx told us it was going to, and we get, you know, just perfection, right? Now, when it comes to assessing that, there's two ways that I think you could be you could be critical. One is, I think, 
both when it comes to this sort of oppression theory and when it comes to the revolutionary moment, these are both making very aggressive epistemological claims about the world, claims that I think we, we are right to be cautious about. Now, that's one way. You know, is it consistent with, like, facts, right? But the other is, is it consistent with itself? Now, the fact that I've noted that inconsistency doesn't mean that, that you, you know, you have to give up on it. There's ways, like, this is something, you know, radicals themselves are aware of and try to think their way out of. So, you know, one solution is sort of separatism. There's, there's categories of black radicals. I will say, you know, probably not speaking for the majority of black people in America, but there, there's categories of um, black radicals who essentially want to withdraw and um, think about how you create spaces that are sort of black only, and, you know, the, the solution to whiteness, as it were, is just for it to cease to exist, whatever that might mean. Now, then you, that, that's a coherent position, and then you can sort of say how likely or possible or desirable is it. Another way is to come off the other side and to sort of have a little bit more optimism that, yes, I think we can certainly say that we're all conditioned by our race and our gender, we've come to understand the world in different ways, and certainly it is true that most all white people lack sort of certain knowledge about the inner mechanics of racism that black people have. I think that's a fair enough, not only fair enough, that seems obviously correct to me, but to have a little bit more optimism that people are improvable, that we can get better, right? And then that allies nicely with a more integrationist vision. And you can still hold on to a sort of radical desire to really reshape the world, but reshaping the world will necessarily involve reshaping people, right? And so if you do want the, the, the utopia not just a sort of a separatist community, the, the Benedictine option, uh, Theresa Bejan called it when she was on my podcast, um, but, you know, you want the whole of society to be transformed, not just your particular part of it, well, then you have to be a bit more optimistic that people can be transformed. Because people are going to have to live in this new society. This new society is going to be made up of people. So, like, you, if, if society is radically improvable, people are going to have to be as well. That's actually sort of where I land personally. Um, I, I am open to ideas of sort of radical refashioning of society, certainly more than sort of liberal centrists would have it. Um, but I think that that's going to have to come together with a sort of moral awakening, whatever that might mean or look like. Now, listen, that's my two cents on that, which is a sort of radical social justice, but nonetheless integrationist worldview. That's sort of where I land within the family of radicalisms. And some people would say, well, that's not really radical or yeah, whatever. You can criticize me. But notice something. What are you going to do when you criticise me? Not do we agree or disagree, that's fine. But, like, what is the mechanics of your argumentation going to be? You're going to look at what I've just said, and you're going to say, well, no, Toby, you're wrong to feel that there's a contradiction between um, this oppression-centred um, psychology of conditioning 
and a revolutionary worldview. You're wrong to think that. Okay, I could be wrong, right? Like, I could be like, maybe there's a coherence there I'm not seeing. Or you could say, well, it, you know, it actually is the case, Toby, that um, not only that people are, you know, conditioned by um, their class and race and gender and so on, which I'm absolutely not denying, but that, 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 that that's irreparable that it's never getting better. That could be something that's true about the world. How would you convince me of it? Well, you'd cite facts, right? So, if you disagreed with me, in your disagreement, you would sort of be using these standards that Frieden outlined and that I outlined at the beginning of this episode, right? We have, to bring it all together, these clusters of values. How do we assess if these clusters of values are right or wrong. Well, maybe right or wrong's too strong a word. There are better and worse ones. How do we think about it? Well, are these clusters of values making claims about the world, predicated on claims about the world, or in a reciprocal interaction with claims about the world that are false? That's one way we can assess them, right? Or, does it all hang together? Are these coherent? After all, these are maps of meaning. These are lenses through which we're going to be interpreting the social and, and uh, political world. You know, do they, do they make sense, right? Now, with all that said, I feel like that's going to be unsatisfying to some people, right? After all, you know, what guarantee is there that this process of fact-checking and... Um, enlightened debate, as Frieden calls it, will lead to us all agreeing. Well, it won't. We don't have that guarantee. Like, you know, you're, why is it that when someone accurately describes how political contestation works, the challenge is, oh, but then how does it end? Well, it's not going to. Now, that's not to say there can't be progress. Societies have changed radically over history. Our understanding of the world has changed radically. But to go back to the quote at the beginning, the tongue of man is a twisty thing, right? This, this seems to have been a universal experience. It doesn't seem like it's going away. And if you're saying this, this account must be wrong because it doesn't give you a guarantee that it's not going to end, you, you're, you're seeking something from accounts of the political, which they're not capable of giving you, or they're not capable of giving you sincerely. Um, so let me um, go back to Frieden here, quoting, quote, There is no suggestion here that one set of responses would be elicited by these processes. Indeed, enlightened political debate may itself arrive at different conclusions, liberal, socialist, conservative, other. Nor is there a suggestion that such debate is not contextually embedded. It is merely that some contexts may be more conductive to the type of conceptual thinking that promotes human flourishing than others. The value of human flourishing, however, may be seen as an acceptable starting point for political debate, even as we acknowledge that there is no way of determining if it is universally valid, end quote. So that wants a little bit of unpacking. But basically, at the end of the day, we have to do something. Now, 
I tend to assess things from a very, very, very sort of broad consequentialism, in which we can just say, you know, does it increase suffering? Does it um, increase other good attributes? I think Frieden's quite similar. I think he uses human flourishing as it doesn't obviously rule out, like, deontology or, like, certain value ethics claims. Um, but he just says, look, you know, there are results to this, and we can sort of say some ways of thinking about the world are going to be more conducive to that. And on that point, it is worth reminding ourselves that we have all of human history and the total sum of what people have said about society and politics and morals to fall back on here. We're not starting blind. We're not just winging it, right? That, you know, we do have these ideas of rights. We do have this idea of welfare and um, freedom and all of the things that we have. We have a vocabulary to draw on. And I've said many times, we can't, as John Stuart Mill says, we can't trust the world around us to be right. All of history could be wrong. It's been wrong about other stuff. But Mill also stressed that we shouldn't pretend we're just starting from scratch either. This is useful. So, quoting Mill from On Liberty, Mill says, It would be absurd to pretend that people ought to live as if experience had taught them nothing towards showing that one mode of existence or of conduct is preferable to another. It is the privilege and proper condition of a human being, arrived at the maturity of his faculties, to use and interpret experience in his own way. End quote. And Frieden cites a bit of that as well. So, like, again, it's this middle ground. Does history tell us how we ought to live? No. But is it a sort of set of data that we have available to us and is of some value? Yes. And again, you know, we have to put in the caveat that, you know, we are at a certain state of, of, of moral knowledge. It's very imperfect, very flawed, but I think we can accept some of what's gone before us. But to sort of accept it as a work in progress and something that awaits contrary proof. That might be too soft for some people, it might be too hard for some people, but that just seems to me, at least, to be the only reasonable um, epistemic outlook on the world. And the final point to make here is that if your, if your reaction to me saying, you know, there are these big terms that are fought over and debated and competed, is to say, well, that can't be right because I really want moral realism to be correct. I've tried to explain that there are methods where we can quite definitely say some ideologies are better and worse than each other, certainly worse, right? Some are just, like, obviously false, as far as I can see. But then that's kind of on you, you know? You either need to say that this isn't the case, and political ideologies don't operate in the way that I've described them as. Or, you need to come along, if, if you feel like you want morality to be more propped up than my account, well, that sounds like you have some argumentative work to do. So, again, going back to um, 
Frieden, he says, and this is all just from, like, a few pages of um, ideology and political theory, which I re really recommend you read. It's a hard read, but I keep going back to this book, and, like, every time I go, I find something new. And when I was looking at this episode, I reread this little bit a few times to try and, like, you know, get this through my head. And this sentence that I'd, I'd um, never really picked up on before jumped out on me. Quote, Nevertheless, and as a backdrop to the discussion to come, the escape from relativism cannot be attained through the tools used in studying ideologies. End quote. So in other words, he's saying, look, I'm giving you a particular set of linguistic tools to make sense of um, how ideologies actually operate. Not how they ought to operate, but how they do operate. That tools isn't going to found you know, this isn't meta-ethics. So, I mean, I'm translating this, but, like, I think one way you have to put that is, like, if you really want a sort of hardcore moral realism to be true, then the argumentative work is on you, right? Like, Frieden's saying, look, I'm just describing the world, right? Now, you can agree or disagree with that description. Let's say we agree. Well, if we agree and you say... Uh, but that just does seem to conflict with, like, what I want to be true about morals, and I really feel like there still is room to, like, not be moral relativists. Cool, you can think that. But then, then that's kind of on you to come up with an argument. And I've given you mine. You know, I've talked about how I think we know that there are conscious minds, we can sort of build out a, a meta-ethics from there. Um, I did a two-part with Philip Pettit, where we really tried to build from the ground up a sort of socially constructed but nonetheless real and objective morality um, in line with his latest work. I think there are good arguments in that space. But then that's kind of on you, right? Now, to conclude with, there's something about that answer that I've always fallen back on, but, but a lot of people find unsatisfying. And I think they find it unsatisfying for the wrong reasons. I think people find the answer that, like, hey, if you want moral realism to be true, come up with an argument. I think people find that answer unsatisfying because... Because, like I say, like, like, like I did a whole episode on with Jacob Levy, people seek guarantees from their political systems and their systems of thought that those guarantees aren't really capable of giving. And at the end of the day, the sort of reality of the matter is that our state of knowledge here is just in that middle ground, right? We, I think we have enough to take seriously the idea that, that it's at least possible that, that, that some moral systems and political ideologies are more valid than others. But there's not a final truth either. Um, I think people want more of a guarantee for that. I don't think that is a good reason. But I think there's another element which runs the other way. It's not that the analyst of ideologies needs to spend more time taking seriously the claims of people who really want to, you know, be prescriptivists and really want to say, this is the one that's true. I actually think it's that the people who say, this is the one that's true, they need to spend more time 
thinking about conceptual indeterminacy, thinking about the, 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 the actual historical operation of ideologies and their real-world contestation. Because, after all, you know, we have to have a particular pair of glasses on to analyse the world. And there is just sort of that element of, like, does it make sense? You know, can I, can I interpret the world this way? And I think people who are making a normative political theory, they're making a prescription. They're saying, you know, I am writing a work of philosophy where I argue that this version of socialism is correct, or this, this version of um, liberalism, or what have you. They want to make their case as strong and as airtight as possible. So they tend, they tend to act as if conceptual indeterminacy isn't true, right? Except that it is. It's obviously the case, I think, once you really think about how language works. And the result is, is it just me? Or does a lot of contemporary political philosophy seem quite isolated from the real world? Seems like things that just would I mean I think Nagel once said of rules that he liked rules even if it was something that was very unlikely to succeed in political debate. Well how's that how's that a positive? Like thinking invoking these categories, understanding their indeterminacy, understanding the role of imagination, understanding the role of trying on different pairs of spectacles is a huge part of it. And I wonder if, the, if there seems like there's a conflict between normative, normative political philosophy and just descriptions of actual ideological contestation, maybe the problem, actually, is on the side of normative political theory. And I want to end this episode with a quote that I think captures that. And this is from uh, Trillig, The Liberal Imagination. And it was written just after the Second World War, and I think that will make this make sense in context. It was written in 1954. But when we look at, you know, Trump and um, the rise of a lot of far-right parties across Europe and so on, it sort of echoes, it, it makes sense today as well, I think. And the quote is this, Unless we insist that politics is imagination and mind, we will learn that imagination and mind are politics, and of a kind that we do not like. End quote. Politics is imagination and mind. At its heart, I think there's two things that all political ideologies do. They provide a story about human nature, who we are, and they provide a story about change in society. What does change look like? How is change possible? These are partially factual claims, they're partially epistemological claims, they're partly moral claims, but they're imaginative claims, they're narrative claims as well, and people don't like that. They want it to be scientific, and it's just not, and it's not going to be, and in a sense, wouldn't it be quite disappointing if it was? If, like, really what human nature is and what we are you, you could just look up in the dictionary. Wouldn't, I, d- I don't know, like, like you know, that, the desirability of it doesn't, isn't an argument, but people tend to find it a depressing truth about the world. 
Is it? Like this quote says, politics is imagination and mind. And then there's a, there's a, there's a trapdoor under that, which is unless we make imagination and mind, you know, imaginings, narratives about what human beings are, about what our societies are, about how they might change, unless we make that part of our normative theory, we'll learn that imagination and mind are politics. Politics not just of imagination, but of, of fantasy, which I think fantasy, as Frieden says, is a perversion of imagination. And whereas imagination is normal and healthy and positive, we now and just as we were in the middle of the century, our politics is getting drawn back into and engulfed by and poisoned by the politics of fantasy. Think about my home country of the UK, where the right now, and I'm going to cover this next week on the podcast actually, right now, the leading candidates for our next prime minister are forced to campaign on things that are just fantasies to promise things that are obvious delusions, that, that we can have our cake and eat it too. To, 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 and it, it's dragging entire societies into the abyss. Politics is imagination and mind. And I think ultimately, now that I've thought about this a bit, and I'll leave you with this thought, maybe the perceived disjuncture between a realistic description of ideological competition and the contestability of language between that and normative political philosophy. Maybe it isn't the description of the world that needs to change in light of what we would like to be true about the world, but maybe it's how we formulate what we would like to be true in light of what is. Thank you.